0: Our Old Testament reading this morning comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do, under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. This is the word of the Lord. It was great to be with you. We're in our second week of a study of Ecclesiastes, and that passage probably sounds very similar to what we read last week, if you were here with us. If you're new, uh, we're going to take about seven weeks in this book and hopefully wrestle some meaning out of this uh, book that preaches meaninglessness. So we're entitling this called Dark Grace. So would you pray with me as we uh, get into this particular passage? Father, I pray that you would help us to open ourselves up to your word, that you would help us to... Open ourselves up to your will, to what you want from us. Father, I pray that we would take hold of this dark grace that is challenging, that is not necessarily comforting, that is hard to hear, that many of the ways that we look to find joy and meaning in life are stripped away. And Father, yet I pray that you would give us courage to do so, that we would not fear the truth, but believe as Jesus taught us, that the truth will set us free. And so, Father, I pray that your truth would do that this morning. You would set us free from all the ways that we seek to avoid the truth and that we seek to amass wealth and possessions and pleasure as ways to find meaning in a somehow meaningless world. Lord, I pray that you would guide our time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ecclesiastes is a bit like a Woody Allen film. And those of you who are fans, despite his uh, personal misdeeds, probably know what I mean. And early in the beginning of one of his films, Radio Days, a boy is struggling with depression. And his mother drags him to the school counselor for help. And the counselor says, well, what's going on? Tell me about your story. And he says, like all eight-year-olds say, do you know that the universe is expanding? Do you realize that eventually everything is going to burn up? Do you realize everything is going to be over? What's the use of doing anything? Well, what does the counselor say? In most places in our world, for most of human history, the counselor would say, well, no, there's plenty of reason. This is not all there is. There's right, there's wrong, there's God, there's eternity. There is meaning to be found. But in our cultural moment, the counselor doesn't have anything to offer him because the boy's right. This little boy is saying there are no answers, Everything is going to burn up. You taught me that in school. Nothing means anything. In the end, it makes no difference what I do because everything is going to be over. He's logical. He recognizes the vanity of existence, and that's why he's in counseling. Well, that's the conclusion that Kohelet, the teacher, the preacher of wisdom in this book, arrives at in chapter 1 that we looked at last week. But maybe he hasn't looked in all the right places. Maybe there's something else that he's missing. And so he takes on this task to investigate pleasure and toil. And he decides to pursue everything that he can imagine that might bring him pleasure. He reasons we have these enormous appetites and the earth provides us a great array of pleasure. An incredible array of ways to explore feeding these appetites. So maybe sensory delights, maybe great achievements is where meaning can be found. Now, most of you have filled out a job resume. You filled out a a job application, a college application. And what do we do when we fill out these things? We talk about how great we are. We sell ourselves. We're not dishonest, hopefully, but we try to put ourselves in the best light. We embellish. That's how I got this job. Well, in the ancient world, it was a common practice for kings to embellish their greatness. They're trying to connect their life's work with something that's lasting. So people reading of their exploits would say, man, I would have loved to have lived under that king's leadership. And this kingly figure in Ecclesiastes, Kohelet, begins to do this. He begins to highlight all of the amazing things that he possesses, all of the things that he's accomplished. And here's his resume. Verse 4 great building projects. He builds houses. He builds vineyards. Verse five, gardens and parks full of fruit trees. Verse six, he constructs reservoirs to send water to the gardens and parks and houses. Now that all sounds very Portlandy. That sounds great. But then we get verse 7. He gathered slaves. That's not a very pleasant thing to think about. But in the ancient world, you see, this was a sign of great wealth and prosperity, that he had the leisure time to explore wisdom because everyone else was working for him. He could command his every wish. Verse 8 silver and gold. He has material wealth. He can buy whatever he wishes. Verse 9. His reputation is greater than anyone that preceded him. He was the Steve Jobs of the ancient world. And he says that he denies himself no pleasure in verse 10. In verse 4, he cheers himself with wine. He goes on an extensive wine tasting, a drinking junket. He goes sideways in Israel. A few of you got that reference. (laughs) Maybe you're embarrassed to laugh. He was the man who has it all. Could pleasure, could possessions release him from the conclusion that he makes in chapter 1 that life is meaningless, that in fact it's a vapor, it's chasing after wind. Verse 10, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. What's his conclusion? Where does that lead? Verse 11, yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done, And what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. Everything was absurd. Everything was vapor, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained. There was no profit. There was nothing left over after all of this pursuing. There was a temporary payoff, but not an ultimate payoff. He's not saying that pleasure has no value, but no ultimate value. If we pursue it, believing that meaning or lasting joy can be found, we'll constantly be frustrated, we'll constantly be disillusioned. The Onion, for those of you who don't know, is a, is a satirical, satirical magazine. and They ran a story this week on Revlon about the company's You Are What You Are campaign. And in this campaign, remember this is The Onion, it's satirical, okay? Revlon is cautioning consumers that, at best, makeup is a sad disguise people hide behind in a futile attempt to avoid uncomfortable facts about their humanity and their mortality. With our new ad campaign, Revlon Vice President Vivian Falk says, We want to emphasize that you can buy all the lotions, powders, fragrances you want, but you can't escape who you really are a fragile, flawed, and ultimately insignificant being who's tormented by fear and insecurity. It's fine to use our products if they make you feel a little more attractive, but just remember, it's only a temporary distraction from the terrifying reality of your barren, unfulfilling life. (laughs) Your existence is a dismal and feeble one, and no amount of mascara is ever going to change that. Company representatives further revealed that a new 60 second TV commercial would conclude. Look at yourself, weak, afraid, all alone in this world. Everyone sees through you. Only death awaits. Revlon. <laughs> Pleasure, beauty. The approval of others, sensual fulfillment are very good things indeed, but don't fool yourself. They can't provide ultimate joy and meaning. And insofar as we pursue them for that, they're just a papering over. They're just a disguise. And they're very uh, a disguise that lets us down. These things are at most contributing factors to real joy. And we know from experience and we know people that some people have great pleasure in eating, great pleasure in drinking, great pleasure in working, and yet are desperately unhappy. And some people don't have that opportunity to pursue the pleasures of this world, and yet they're joyful, they're happy, even though they're denied riches and sensual pleasure. What Kohelet is searching for in this quest isn't this momentary sensual pleasure that comes and goes. There's nothing wrong with it, but it's not ultimately fulfilling. But what he's looking for and what he doesn't find in pleasure, in possessions, is this stable type of happiness. It's a lasting joy that's directed to a worthy object. Kohelet t- took pleasure and possessions to an extreme, and he learned from it. And that's why we have this book here, so that we don't have to repeat the futility of that exercise, that we don't have to go searching in all the places that he's already searched and found nothing lasting. He had almost unlimited resources, an orgy of pleasure, and he was left unsatisfied. So who are we to think that our pursuit of pleasure, limited as it is by our limited resources, our need to work, the demands on our life, will produce anything different the harder we harder we try to create meaning our own joy the more we will feel like it's slipping through our fingers but it's not the end of the story because after Ecclesiastes one came who had a very different approach to joy the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus the pioneer and perfecter of faith for the joy set before him endured the cross he went to the cross, not out of duty, not because he had to, but to encounter joy, he laid down his life so that you and I could take it up. Kohelet pursued that that which would bring him sensory pleasure, and it left him empty and doubtful that the world had any significant meaning. In fact, he was quite convinced that it didn't. Jesus, however, pursues what would bring others eternal joy, and it brought him joy. It brought him that stable, lasting happiness that doesn't come and go, that doesn't fluctuate. If you're new to InTown, one of the things that we try to drive home, that we try to emphasize is that being a part of a church isn't finding the place that best meets your needs, but it's finding the place that best pushes you into others' needs. Often the Christian journey isn't possessing your best life now. It's forsaking temporary pleasure so that others' real, lasting joy can be secured. Sometimes it's encouraging, or sometimes it's renouncing our dreams and finding the courage to walk into other people's nightmares. One of the ways we may choose to do this, one of the applications that we may take from this is by joining a community group. In doing so, you're you're thrust into other people's lives and needs, and you have an opportunity each and every week or every other week to help carry someone else's burdens. Maybe you have a resource of spiritual maturity that you can impart through intentional one-on-one relationships or through a small group. Maybe it's rethinking how you go about your work. Instead of seeing it as a means to an end, you begin to wonder who on your team who sits in a nearby cubicle that needs a, a kind word, a word of encouragement? Who has burdens that they're not expressing that you maybe could unearth through a strategic conversation? If you're a student in the classroom, maybe it's looking for the person with few friends and seeking to be a friend to them. You see, as we choose to live this way, we're not simply mimicking Jesus, but our work, our toil has eternal worth. It has lasting value. Were you paying attention to the New Testament reading? I'm sorry, the gospel reading? Jesus tells us that what you do for the least of these you've done unto me. That is what you've done to those with people, done for people with needs, with burdens, no matter how minuscule, no matter how small, it's as if you've done them for Jesus. Kohelet accomplishes monumental achievements, and he finds it's not lasting. But Jesus says that the very least thing that you do, if it's done unto him, it's as if you've served him forever. No matter how great your accomplishments are under the sun, your name will fade from memory. But however slight your gift is to those that he loves, your name will live on in, mem- in memoriam, and it will live on in Jesus' memory as successful as you might be, as much pleasure you might take in, you can't undo this absurdity of life. And you're all facing, I'm facing, the absurdity of death. You really can't have it all if you're looking under the sun. Ecclesiastes has an ending, and we'll look at it in a few weeks, but here's just a taste of what's coming. The author leaves us with some very simple thoughts on life. Verse 13 in chapter 12. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. Fear God. Wait on God. Follow God. Decenter your own story. Decenter your own life quest and let him take up residence in the middle of your story. Let him and what he wants to do in and through you become your life quest. Let his kingly reality shape the way you think about pleasure and work. Let him, something from outside of the system, do something about the absurdity of life. If you're always and only working within the system, under the sun, then life is vaporous. Life is without meaning. The only way that life becomes less absurd, the only way that life has not only meaning but joy is when we filter life through the relationship with a God who approaches us from the outside. When we see that Jesus comes in from beyond the sun to create meaning, to give us meaning, to give us joy. And as an act of grace, we receive the message that God says as He comes into our system, as He comes and enters into our world, as He comes from beyond the sun and He says, I love you, I accept you. And we begin to move into the world then, not trying to wrestle meaning and happiness from an ever-diminishing pool, but with meaning and happiness in the aggregate, exponentially trying to then connect others to what we've found. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would turn ourselves outward. In fact, that you would turn us outward, that we would see the needs next to us and Have the courage to say, How can I help? We don't have unlimited resources, but I pray that we would be able to rest in your unlimited resources, to at least give a kind word, to at least care, to at least have empathy for the person next to us who is struggling, who is suffering. That we would see our resources not as means to our own joy and pleasure, but as ways that we can, as resources that we can give away for others. And in so doing, that we would find joy and find peace and find lasting meaning. We pray as we continue to worship that you would drive this truth and this conclusion down deeper within our souls. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.